Hi, and welcome back to another edition of Occupy. Uh, this is what used to be the Occupy America Network. We're now called the Voices Network. Um, got a really good show here. This is Episode 9, Firebell in the Night. Um, this is Election Day, so Firebell in the Night uh, is probably pretty appropriate here. We've got a lot to cover. We'll just try to get it underway. Firebell in the Night goes back to a quote that you'll see linked from Thomas Jefferson, uh, talking about in the 1820s, um, he was anticipating that the slavery issue was possibly going to tear the country apart. Forty years later, it was the Civil War. It also fits with the Ferguson uprising. Uh, in Ferguson, 12% um, of the population uh, is being attacked. Divide and conquer is, is a standard part of the toolbox of the money power. And we'll be explaining some of those issues. Uh, David Callahan is our uh, co-host. Uh, say hey, David. Hey, David. No, sorry, Terry. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Patrick <laughs> Wood <laughs> is returning. This is his third time with us. He did Occupy Sutton. He did Occupy Technocracy, which is his specialty. He'll be helping us with a big picture here. And our other guest, we're happy to say, is... Elaine, uh, say hello, Elaine Wilman. Hi. Yes, this is Elaine Wilman. I'm very happy to be with you folks today. We're really happy to have you, Patrick. I didn't get your dulcet tones on here. Uh, let's take off and start the show. Uh, David, kind of help us out here. Lead us through. Okay. Um, well, you know, we, we want to make sure as we get started that we uh, acknowledge that this, by the way, is Election Day 2016, for those that might hear this over a year from now, because uh, we do hope that uh, this becomes a uh, show that can be listened to over and over again, because we obviously have a big problem to fix in this country of um, just simply making sure we have the right message. And uh, so, you know, we understand that uh, we're going to be tacking, uh, tackling a pretty important uh, subject today, and that's uh, got to do with the issue of technocracy is it has to do with imperialism uh, that still exists. It's funny, um, you know, uh, who was the uh, the philosopher, uh, political philosopher, um, George Santayana said, they who for, uh, uh, forget to remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And uh, we certainly need to look at our past and our in our current history of what's going on, and that's what this show is going to be about. Um, we also understand that there's people, and uh, I think it's important to recognize that, uh, in the marketplace of ideas who uh, are being uh, uh, not necessarily fair and honest sometimes in terms of how they uh, identify those of us who raise issues. And we do know, for instance, Elaine, that in your uh, background and experience that uh, you've taken some positions to defend uh, Native Americans and their cause, and and if you take a minute, if you would, uh, please uh, share a bit about yourself with us, uh, and uh, uh, so that the audience has an idea. And we kind of frame that in the concept that uh, you yourself have been labeled as uh, anti-Indian by some uh, players, yeah. uh, and we we want to nip that in the bud right from the beginning. So please share your you know, background and 
and a little bit about yourself and, and address that issue specifically in your introduction of yourself for us, if you wouldn't mind. Sure, sure, and thank you. Um, yeah, my name is Elaine Willman, and um, I am of strong Cherokee ancestry. I am not enrolled, but my mother and grandmother were. And my husband is of uh, Shoshone ancestry. As a matter of fact, he is a direct descendant of Sacagawea's adopted son, Basil. Basil was the four-year-old son of Sacagawea's sister that Sacagawea adopted. And my husband is um, the great-great-grandson of Basil. So we bear a strong lifetime affection and respect for our ancestry and for all of Native American ancestry. Um, I'm called a racist because of my research over the past 25 years. Um, I, my, my professional career was in community planning. I worked in Southern California and Washington State and Wisconsin for local government. So I have a strong local government on the ground community, community planning background. Mixed with my affection for Native Americans, I was thrilled when in 1992 I was hired by the city of Toppenish, Washington, which is a city in the center of the huge Yakima Reservation in Washington State. I was just absolutely thrilled to come up from Southern California knowing nothing about life on Indian reservations and having the kind of mentality or perception that most folks do. That we imagine these Indian reservations as being these small, these islands uh, unto themselves, uh, sort of the dancing with wolves perspective, and uh, that they're just an island unto themselves. But when I arrived in Toppenish, I learned that all of these reservations across the country are opened up. They all have counties and towns uh, with co-jurisdiction and co-location on Indian reservations, and most of the reservations are predominantly non-Indian. Um, so I've lived 16 years on the Yakima Reservation and eight years on the Oneida Reservation in Wisconsin and coming up on my second year here on the Flathead Reservation in Montana. Um, what got me into the research on this was when I learned that Native Americans uh, uh, who are enrolled members of their tribal governments do not have the Bill of Rights. They do not have free speech or the right of assembly. Or they do not have the, the civil rights protections that all of the rest of us do. But they're full citizens. And the problem is that they're dual citizens now since 1934. In 1924, every Native American was made a full citizen. But in 1934, when the Congress passed the Indian Reorganization Act, it created dual citizenship where an enrolled tribal member of his government on the reservation lacks any constitutional or civil rights protections. And that keeps them in line on the reservations. Uh, I should say there's 5.5 million Native Americans, or at least folks that mark their Census Bureau information as Native American. Uh, out of that 5.5 million, just about a million are enrolled tribal members. So it's these million enrolled tribal members that are my focus and their needs. And in the process of looking at their needs and the lives that they live and the devastation on the reservations, I have encountered the power of tribal governments. And there's a big distinction. I am called anti-Indian because I am anti-tribal government. But I'm very pro, and the organizations that I'm affiliated with are very pro Native American. We work with tribal members. I'm working with families right now out here um, who dared speak up against their tribal government 
and lost three of their children immediately. Um, We've got about 12 minutes left in this section. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so that's where I'm coming from. Out? I'm about the Native American people, but I'm not about the tribal government or the federal system forcing this on them. Yes, ma'am. There is a war going on at Standing mm -hmm. Rock right now. Um, mm -hmm. and, and David, can you kind of lead us through what we're seeing at yeah. Standing Rock? Let's, let's, well, let's take a half a minute for Patrick to say hi and, and just give you know brief background just for those who've never heard of him before that might be hearing the show for the first time. Patrick? Mm -hmm. Well, how do you do? Uh, I am Patrick Wood. I've studied globalization since the late 1970s, um, written a few books along the way, uh, including my latest, Technocracy Rising, The Trojan Horse of Global Transformation. And uh, I did, back in the late 70s and early 80s, uh, work with uh, Professor Sutton. Uh, we co-authored Trilaterals Over Washington together, back then, Volumes 1 and 2. And here we are today, fast forward, uh, almost 40 years. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that intro. Mm -hmm. We're going to start this, we're going to continue this first section by talking about the title of it being Domestic Imperials. And... Terry, I think it's appropriate to have you just chime in very briefly about Jefferson's quote of the fire bell in the night and give us some context to the, the, this section, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, Tom, the, the very first uh, link we'll have up is, is the actual quote, and he's talking about uh, in the 1820s, he's, he's talking in a letter uh, that he, is, he feels terror a fire bell in, in in that time period was was how you alerted that there was a fire underway that could burn down not just one home but everybody's home, uh, kind of like fire alarm now. Um, and what he was what he was foreseeing was that the slavery issue, Missouri, uh, the Missouri Act, uh, was tearing the Union apart. We almost didn't have a union in 1776, the Declaration of Independence. Uh, over the slavery issue. Um, in the 1820s, the Missouri Act, uh, 40 years later from, from this point, we have a civil war that tried to tear the Union apart. Divide and conquer. Uh, we'll be talking about imperialism, foreign involvement to try to destroy the American system, American sovereignty. Um, that's Mr. Jefferson's fireball in the night, and it's election day. We're still hearing the fire bell in the night uh, today. Uh, take it by, take okay. it away, Dave. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So the question is, what's the fire bell that we're trying to address? I suppose, and that's uh, some information where, that is very uh, upfront in the news these days about what's going on with the Standing Rock Reservation out in uh, uh, North Dakota and the Dakota Access Pipeline. Uh, the companies involved with that, like Enbridge Energy and others, and uh, the fact that we're seeing atrocities against individual rights and the rights of uh, freedom of religion, freedom of expression, uh, the right peacefully to assemble, those types of things are being completely undermined, and not surprisingly by what the founders con were concerned about was the standing army, or uh, what we call in our day and age the uh, police state threat, and that police forces from across the country are being brought in to pretty much control the population of uh, Native Americans there from their protests against what they believe is uh, their uh, sacred grounds and their uh, need to protect their water. And 
So we have people like Ruth Hopkins out there who is tweeting, uh, racial tensions in North Dakota are unbelievably high. Natives are being harassed, followed, and kicked out of businesses over the pipeline. Uh, She's making comments about the folks from the Ferguson front lines are at Standing Rock. So we see that this is a broad, sweeping type of a situation. Um, The president's proclamation for Native American Heritage Month and how Natives are being treated. So Ruth is putting out some... Uh, very good information for us, but but we want to expand that conversation a bit here uh, to uh, give us some ideas on how we can uh, uh, awaken the people and and move this whole concept forward. So let's talk a bit about domestic imperialism and and uh, those uh, issues. Uh, Patrick or um, Lane, do you want to chime in on any of these thoughts? Well, one of the things that is happening in the Western states fiercely under this administration, but it has been going on for several previous administrations, but it is on fire uh, in this administration, is the the nationalizing of the Western states and the um, the confiscation of state resources, state rights, and state jurisdiction over lands. Um, that spread is causing the confiscation of state waters being transferred over to small tribal governments. And that goal is to expand tribal government. This has nothing to do with the tribal members. Most of them do not agree. But the tribal governments are now acquiring state waters and resources, state lands, and governments over not, governance over non-members through this national effort of the feds expanding tribalism as the governing system over large areas and resources of states. Uh, that is happening, as I said, on steroids. It's huge in the uh, uh, Southern Oregon area with the Klamath uh, crisis going on down, uh, taking down four dams. It's, it's happening in Idaho, taking down four dams on the Snake River. It's happening across these western states, and the end goal is food production in the country. The, Fed, the Obama administration is using tribal governments as pawns, as the launch pads for taking down state authorities. And, and capturing state resources. So then let's back up to the Dakota pipeline. The bottom line, and this is a, a probably a little different perspective to add to the context, the bottom line on the Dakota pipeline area is land status. The pipeline is laid out predominantly over state land, but by by raising the political awareness and using the tribal governments to send their people, uh, it is a tool to capture state lands and state authorities in North Dakota. We've that's got about three minutes of, left that, in this section, yeah, Lane. So that's what I mean by nationaling. The Dakota pipeline struggle, legal struggle, is, is a good example of the federal government pushing out to, to nationalize and and remove state authorities over state lands. Patrick, well, we, we've got about three minutes left. Patrick, Can you kind of tie this into the big picture, please? Yeah. This, this, let me say that there are some things that the federal government cannot do to the states uh, for a number of legal reasons. And the, uh, the Indian reservation system uh, has been discovered as a way to lever states into doing things that they would not otherwise be able to be forced to do. Um, exactly. The, the Indian uh, community uh, from top to bottom operates uh, outside of the normal constitutional structure 
that we have in America, as Elaine has already said. And uh, this, uh, this has allowed the administration to use these little, uh, these reservations, which are relatively small compared to the whole country, but to use these reservations um, and as treating them as, uh, if you will, uh, sovereign nations, mm-hmm. to do things to the local community that draw resources into those sovereign nations so they can then be dealt with in a completely different way than they ever would have been dealt with within the states themselves. Um, and uh, many of these uh, uh, the so-called sovereign nations, which that, I'm not going to argue the, the efficacy of that, but the, the idea is that sovereign nations can enter into treaties with foreign governments. Uh, states cannot. It's per, expressly forbidden for a state to enter into a contract with a foreign government uh, for transfer of land, transfer of resources, etc. But uh, the Indian reservations are being couched as entities that can do that. And so the administration uh, has been using this to, uh, to break down the, the fabric of the states, and it's, again, especially in the West. Yes. About two minutes left in this section. Can we tie that into technocracy? How is this being done? The last show was Occupy Imperial. We were showing how foreign powers uh, were were using us, America, uh, to further the money power interests. Uh, now we're looking at domestic foreign powers, and we'll get down into that in about the next yeah. section in a minute or so. <laughs> follow the money. Well, um, yeah. Here's here's the deal. This this whole environment here is about grabbing resources. You hear the word conservation, just think resource grab. Um, exactly. Most people don't understand that the Obama administration, since he stepped into office, has grabbed 265 million acres, mostly in the West, over the course of almost eight years. 265 million acres. The BLM itself now controls 247 million acres. Fish and Game has 89 million acres. Forest Service has 197 million acres. National Park Service has 84 million acres. Wilderness areas, 109 million acres. Wetlands, 110 million acres. And I'm not even including any of the any of the uh, Indian reservation acreage. But this totals, all this totals what the federal government has direct control over, 836.5 million acres. That's 30%, 36% of the land mass of the continental United States. This is just inconceivable what, what yeah. the federal government has been doing to rip off land from the states. And every time land goes away from the states, the states lose the tax base. They don't get a nickel from the federal government for it. And in most cases, the land gets completely frozen. The, the roads are shut off. Gates are put up. Locks are put on the gates. Signs are put up warning people if you go in, it's going to be you know, really, really bad for you. Um, and this is the state of America right now. America is being stolen right under our nose by our own government. Yeah. And if I might jump in for just a moment, uh, thank you so much, Patrick, for exactly what you said. The newest tool uh, with the land grab you just described is the Tribal Forestry Management Act. 
wherein any tribe within a hundred miles of a forest um, uh, can be the national forest can be taken over for tribal management if they have if that tribe has any cultural interest or their ancestors walk through there. Bottom line is it affects all of our national forests across the country that are now being proposed by Congress to be taken over by the by tribal management. And that is a tool that goes up against the American Lands Council that is trying to get these federal lands in the western states constitutionally disposed back to the states. It's an egregious process and it's going to change who can use it, who can enjoy, who can even enter the national forest because they'll be under the management of these tribal governments who represent 1 million out of 324 million Americans. It's devastating what the, what the Obama administration has been rolling out lately. It's 20 minutes into the show. Uh, the, the Native Americans are protesting and what they're protesting is while we're talking about these supposedly are in uh, Native American control, there's a company out there without permits, and we'll have a link on that, that's bulldozing what's known to be burial sites. Uh, their, their question to the nation is, how would you feel if you were bulldozing your family's cemetery? Um, they have a very valid point here. Uh, we've could you go ahead, David, and kind of lead us? Yeah, into the well, next you section? know, and as we Let's as we dovetail into this as we dovetail into this next section, uh, we uh, recognize, uh, and it will be on the links to the show that there's actually been implemented a no-fly zone over uh, the area of the uh, disputed uh, situation, um, which is similar to what they've done over Syria. So we're seeing, you know, it's the uh, the more things change, the more they remain the same, kind of an analogy. And uh, reporters are being arrested for simply reporting what they're seeing and, and uh, with some pretty hefty uh, penalties if convicted of up to 20 years in jail for simply being a reporter uh, trying to uh, expose what's going on. Uh, and the government also using tactics such as uh, not... Uh, providing the funds to the Indians that they uh, promise in order to control and uh, manipulate them. So what we're seeing here is the principle of, uh, that we learned from Patrick uh, and his friend Anthony Sutton, uh, follow the money, follow the power, and how the power uh, manipulates using uh, economic uh, you know, interests and economic uh, abilities to uh, you know, get their way and, and as one of the control frauds of many that are used in order to achieve their purposes. So as we move into the second section, follow the money, one of the things we've done is we've uh, drilled down on this pipeline uh, that's uh, in place out there, and we're identifying the company behind it, one of them being Enbridge Energy Partners, EEP. And when you look at their board of directors, you see, and we'll have a link to this list of board of directors, you see some pretty interesting characters, uh, and I'll just point out a couple, and then we'll bring both Patrick and Elaine in to talk further. Uh, you have, uh, um, for instance, an individual on the board who is, has been the chair, vice chairman of the board of a Chinese company, uh, uh, if I said this right, the Peng Ling, and also uh, a president of a Canadian uh, 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 gas company, um, part of BP uh, Canadian, uh, sorry, BP China Gas, 
but also uh, another one on the board who's been a uh, member of the board of directors of um, Spectra uh, Energy in Canada. So you see that there's international interests even in this company that is uh, the, the ones who aren't getting the proper permits to build the pipeline. And why would they want to build the pipeline? We're finding that this pipeline will connect into Illinois, which will then connect into a pipeline that goes down to Louisiana for the purposes, even though they said in the beginning that this was going to be 100% domestic use, that this would be the means to get the oil from the United States off the shore for international purposes. So we see a bigger picture of how the international players are attempting to manipulate American interests. Uh, if we could start from there, follow the money, follow the power. Uh, Elaine or Patrick, if you'd like to uh, you know, follow up on this, it would be greatly appreciated. Well, I'll add my concern on this, and that is that if our national government, if our federal government, can use these 567 quasi-sovereign tribal governments to stop the Keystone Pipeline, to stop the Dakota Pipeline, to stop an urgently needed clean coal harbor in Washington State, that's a great way to stop America's ability to have its own energy, to be independent with its own energy, with its own resources from this country. That worries me. And I do see that playing out as a part of the political process on this Dakota Pipeline. Again, it's the tribal governments that coordinate. They can command their tribal members. You go there, you protest. Um, and we're talking about a protest on state lands, as Patrick referred to. The game is capturing state lands and state resources. And ultimately, the game is to cripple America's ability to become energy efficient. That's 14 minutes left in this section. Uh, and, and we do have a link showing maybe this was billed as uh, trying to make American self-sufficient on energy, but the energy is not going to Americans. Uh, follow the money. It, well, following the money, uh, the energy is produced in America and can be exported for a price and revenue coming back to the country. So I don't have a problem with that. What I do have a problem with is being unable to produce any energy on our own and being completely dependent on paying for energy come brought in. There's something wrong with that to me. Thirteen minutes left, Patrick. What is what what is? How does this well, fit with technocracy? Yeah, the um, the international trade aspect here is, I think, what's a view. Um, the, uh, the the major oil companies have been looking for a way to internationalize uh, Canadian resources, especially, um, and all the talk of the pipelines being built down to New Orleans, for instance, are. Uh, to internationalize the, our, our own oil supply. Now, uh, you, on, on the aggregate of it, um, the trade deficit would be, uh, uh, the official numbers of the trade deficit would be reduced if we sold oil uh, that we produce here to overseas nations. But the problem is, who gets the money? Uh, you know, who has yeah. control over that? And it's not it's not Amer it's, this does not come to benefit Americans. It's benefiting the globalist community of corporations. Uh -huh. And I'm not anti-corporation per se, but I am, uh, am anti-stomp-everybody-else-in-sight uh, 
for their selfish interest because you know one of the one of the principles of free enterprise is you can do whatever you want but you don't get to harm anyone else in the process and um this uh, this this international process is grinding down national sovereignty uh all over the world not just here and yeah. so if Americans themselves, if if our if our national debt was being paid down, uh, for instance, if our uh, if our wealth and resources were being increased, I would say that, that this this could be a good thing. But that's not happening. Our national wealth has been decreasing for at least forty years, and it continues to decrease even today. And it's because of deals like this that we see this happening. And honestly, <clears throat> there are I don't see any really clean actors in this whole situation, this whole scenario uh, with, with this particular pipeline at this point. The only people that probably have a legitimate grievance are the individuals, the individual people that see themselves as getting shortchanged, which they are. And I think this is part of the populist vote right now, that people are looking to Donald Trump to try and fix some things that need to be fixed. Because we're fed up getting drained. And, um, uh, you know, the people, the corporations that are in, involved in this, uh, you know, they're just doing stuff that's just off the charts. And the tribal governments themselves that are colluding with these organizations in many cases or colluding with the national, with our own federal government, uh, they're just as bad because they're pulling, they're pulling some dirty deals and stuff. So it's really hard to figure out. Who's who's really got the right side in this whole thing? It's a mess. It's just a yeah. mess. Ten minutes left in this section. One of the links that will be with this is is showing uh, there was the Indian tribes involved, the Sioux tribes, were portrayed as getting this money. Um, we have documentation showing they're not getting the money. Uh, David, can you kind of run us through some of those links? Well, yeah, interestingly, uh, one of the links that uh, we've found is a link that shows how many of the banks are, are putting their money into this effort. And you go down the list and you'd think that you were back in 2008 to 2010 with the mortgage bubble and all the banks that were running into problems because uh, they were, you know, having uh, their uh, uh, all the foreclosures that were going on in the country, Bank of America, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, Citizens Bank, Bank of Nova Scotia, go down the list, there's a whole boatload of them. In fact, virtually every international bank on the planet has put in multi-hundreds of millions of dollars into this project through such companies as Sunoco Logistics and uh, uh, um, Dakota Access, um, Energy Transfer Partners. They're, they're all getting... The Wells Fargo put in $467 million. HSBC Bank put in $189 million. Uh, the Royal Bank of Scotland put in over, uh, actually, a quarter of a billion dollars into the project. The Bank of Tokyo has put in half a billion dollars. So <clears throat> we're seeing these massive amounts of money coming from all these banking interests through loans, obviously, uh, as their main means to support it. But they're going to make uh, a significant return on what they're investing into this project. And, that, and yet, you've got, we've got links up showing that the Native Americans themselves uh, in this whole area of uh, this pipeline going to their part of the world, and uh, they're getting virtually nothing in return for their uh, concerns. Um, we, we're just finding that there's uh, certainly, in the same way that we pointed out in the last show, uh, international interests on the outside of the country 
we have international on the inside of the country where they ought to uh, be behaving themselves, not behaving themselves. And so uh, let's uh, let's talk about that a little bit more here. If uh, either of you would like to interject, and Patrick, it'd be great to get your input here. This is your area of expertise. Well, yeah, we 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 look at where where the money comes from to uh, to to finance these kinds of projects and stuff, and we invariably end up in the same, pretty much in the same place. It it ends up uh, finding its roots in Wall Street uh, or some uh, derivative derivative of that. Uh, but the big banks, um, the um, uh, the big, uh, I'm not, I want to say venture capital companies like Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan, um, this is where most of the finance emanates from uh, and can be traced back to it. This has been going on for well over 150, probably 150 years at this point, so it's nothing new. But wherever you see this money show up, usually, usually there's corruption that follows. Uh, that's because when money gets thrown around, uh, everybody and their brother wants to get close to it so they can get a piece of it. And uh, and they usually end up doing that. So yeah, the closer you get to the money, the more likely you are to get rich. Um, that's that's what they believe. So they always stay close to the source of money, which is the Treasury and the Fed. And um, they deal out money with a fire hose to projects like this and stuff that they feel will benefit them and that will benefit the, uh, you know, the... the uh, global corporate control, if you will, of everything in sight. So uh, it's, it's, not, it's not a new story. It's just re- being replayed over and over again. You're making, you're making a valid point there, Terry uh, or uh, Patrick, and that is that um, those that fail to remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And if I might throw this in, we have a link to the Rio Tinto company back in the 1870s that by the 1880s was controlled by the Rothschild family. Yeah. Uh, and that, and maybe we, uh, and you know, we can address that Rio Tino uh, company situation and how there was a mining uh, uh, interest that turned into uh, being controlled by the money power. So, uh, and maybe Elaine, you're about to say something. Well, I was going to say, if I might, uh, another big money wheel that I think most Americans are unfamiliar with um, is money is power. And our power source, our biggest power source is Congress. Um, we, the American taxpayer, funds annually all the basic needs, health, education, housing, tribal courts, all the basic needs of a, of a reservation are funded annually by the American taxpayer. Congress also passed in 1988 the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. That created huge free money for tribal governments. And in my view, the free money is used because they don't have to cover their basic needs. The American taxpayer does. So that big gaming revenue is free money, and it is used for what I call the four L's. It buys land, it buys lobbyists, it buys legal counsel, and it buys legislators. And so what we're talking about here is billions of dollars nobody's ever calculated. All the you know, 29 federal agencies funding 567 tribes annually through taxes and then this free money rolls back into Congress, and it, it buys 
elected officials. I call them coin-operated elected officials. Washington State, Idaho, Oregon, Montana, good examples where the, the senators and congressmen, the state legislators, even county commissioners are in office because of tribal funding. Tribal governments are the only governments in our country that can cut a check to a, a political party or a PAC or a candidate or an incumbent. And our congressional folks are now doing all the bidding. It's not a do-nothing Congress. They've been rolling out uh, programs to expand tribalism because they're owned financially by these tribal monies. And that's a huge power wheel that is accelerating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really good. Go ahead, Patrick. Well, I want to point out that uh, if we look back into the 1990s under Bill Clinton, especially when all of the Agenda 21 uh, projects got started, uh, we won't get off on a tangent on that, but um, during the Clinton administration, uh, the Secretary of Interior was an Arizonan by the name of Bruce Babbitt. Mm-hmm. And Bruce Babbitt was a member of the Trilateral Commission. Uh, he was actually candidated to run for president when Jimmy Carter ran for president. He was a governor of a state. Carter and Babbitt were both members of the Trilateral Commission. He got aced out, and so when uh, when when uh, Clinton came in, he appointed his trilateral commission buddy, Bruce Babbitt, to be Secretary of the Interior. Now, during mm-hmm. that period of time, this this man, uh, and I might say executing trilateral commission policy, um, yep. he turned the Department of Interior upside down, which also includes the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which is under his jurisdiction. This was the man... Mm-hmm who single-handedly came up with the policy of dam destruction in America. This was his baby all the way. And when you consider the fact that he was a member of the Trilateral Commission, which had a stated goal of creating a new international economic order, you can see why some of this stuff is in such a mess today. They they had this vision a long time ago as to what they were going to do. And they've executed their vision. It's just that it's boring. I mean, who, you know, who really looks at what's going on in Indian reservations, for Pete's sake? It's, I mean, it just doesn't catch public attention. But when you have people that are protesting and militaries converging and et cetera, et cetera, all of a sudden they get their day in the sun. And people go, what's going on here? This is nuts. Where did this come from? Well, I can tell you where it came from. Go back and study Bruce Babbitt during his yep. tenure as Department of Interior, and you will find he's the guy that set the stage for all the stuff that's happening today in the West and with land grabs and everything else. One minute left. and that's Patrick, really could I ask you to expand on that one little bit? Can you, and within the last minute, uh, we want to give equal um, opportunity here. I'm certain that the Bush administration that followed Clinton and preceded Obama also probably has some play in this. Can you point out an example I'm Absolutely. sorry to put you on the spot, but can you think of anything in, that continues it within uh, the George W. Bush administration? Um, yeah, okay, you mean within the okay within the George W. Well, yeah, the Bush administration never turned anything back at all. No, no policy was turned back. No. Dick Cheney was a member of the Trilateral Commission as well. Uh, in fact, he's a very powerful member. Cheney and his wife were both members of the Trilateral Commission in their own right. 
They were the only husband and wife team that ever joined the Trilateral Commission. And by the way, you don't apply for membership there. They come and tap you on the shoulder if they want you. So those policies were merely continued. And I might add, I just noticed that this here, uh, the the BIA is responsible for 55,700,000 acres of Native American land. This land was set aside for the Indians. Now, that was a rotten deal in the first place for them, but that's what it was, 55.7 million acres. That land technically belongs to the Indian tribes. It's their land. It doesn't belong, is not owned by the federal government. But the federal government has inserted itself into it as if it did own that land. It's not, they don't really hold title to it per se. They, well, they do, but they hold title for the Indians. But when they set their greedy, lustful eyes on that 55.7 million acres, um, the whole attitude towards how the Indians would be used changed. And not that it was good before that. I'm not saying it was good before that either, but I'm just saying they spotted this land and says, dang, we can, we can, you know, there's a lot of resources and we could do a lot of good stuff with that land. So, you know, again, back to Arizona, uh, that was Oak Flats. Uh, we, we mentioned Rio Tinto, uh, which shows uh, ownership back to the Rothschilds, uh, which is about as money power as it gets. And that was uh, with, with McCain was slipped into the NDAA to steal that piece of property from the mm-hmm. Indian tribes. Um, that, and there's a news blackout. Most people, Lane, I didn't think, I, as far as I knew, you didn't even weren't even aware that was going on. No, I hadn't looked into the Rio Tinto until you brought it to my attention. Mm-hmm. But I want to, you know, what Patrick said about Babbitt was so right on. And Babbitt's brains was a guy named William Veder, V-E-E-D-E-R. Mm-hmm. He really set the Indian policy for Babbitt. And it was Nixon's Indian policy that uh, was, was implemented uh, uh, later on with, with the Clinton administration. But I want to back up to the year 1904. Because where I'm going with this is in 1904, there was a Secretary of Interior by the name of A. Albert B. Fall, F-A-L-L, famously known as being impeached under the Teapot Dome scandal. When the West was being settled, Albert B. Fall put out a circular, a federal circular, that all energy resources, new dams being built in the West, any new power companies being built in the West, were to be located on or near Indian reservations. That was 1904, and the, and the reason was to keep the federal foot on the, on the energies of the West. Fast forward to 2010, Obama and Congress decided that our nation's power grid was good economic development for tribal governments. And so they passed the 2010 Indian Energy Policy Act. They're now throwing out billions for Indians to take over major hydropower dams, electric companies, and resources. They are intentionally softening the, um, the national power grid through this process. And now add one more thing. Two more years later, 2012, Congress passed the Indian Hearth Act, a little benign the big federal appropriation for housing, education, and all the things that the tribal governments need. Tucked into the Indian Hearth Act 
is the, the lamenting that American private sector is not going on to reservations and creating business. Well, they tried, but they've been burned so badly because you can't sue if they don't pay. Um, so Obama has decided that the wealthy Middle Eastern countries would be very good to intermix with the tribal governments. And so now on these Indian federal trust lands where state and local counties and law enforcement has no, no view, now we have tribal governments like the one on this flathead that has been doing business with Turkey and Saudi Arabia since 2009, and this tribal government was just given a major hydropower dam. Uh, we have a little problem with ISIS and Middle Eastern terrorism coming into the country, and how better than to come in on these private federal trust lands near America's energy. This is how bad this spread of tribalism is, is moving forward to not just take down the states, but to take down the country. This does lead to our third segment. The horror of that is that ISIS is being funded by America. Um, Absolutely. Again, that's the pattern. Divide and We are a country in tribal. uh, We are a country in trouble, and these tribal governments are being used as wonderful pawns and Mm -hmm. launch pads. And the tribal members are as frightened as we are. We've got 15 minutes left. Patrick, go ahead. Yeah, this is um, when the the federal government wants to do something, um, it has to apply to Congress for funds. And Congress authorizes a budget, and uh, that's transparent by and large to the American people. You can go see that. You may not like it. You probably won't. But you can go see it and see where money has been allocated by Congress. Uh, to the executive branch to spend on various projects and stuff and departments and uh, agencies and, and the like. Um, but when uh, <clears throat> when the federal government wants to do something to to skirt Congress uh, on on this and, and kind of uh, hide themselves, hide their financing and stuff, what they do is they create off-agency uh, debt or off-agency uh, transactions which are not really scrutinized as part of the federal budget. A good example is leasing a car. When you lease a car, you make payments for your lease payment. You might pay out $2,500 down payment, and that's an expenditure. But the payments that you make, you're liable, to say, for 36 or 48 payments, uh, say, I don't know, $500 a month or whatever. That, that You owe that money over a period of time, but you don't report it on your on your. Uh, your asset statement or your liability statement as a debt. It's, it's, an off, it's an off agency transaction. Now, the government, the federal government has huge off agency debt that is not part of the national debt officially. Some estimate, some uh, well-known economists estimate it to be something like uh, $200 billion. That's significantly larger than our actual official national debt of 19 or whatever, 20 trillion. Now, the reason I'm saying this is because uh, if you take that concept and you roll it over on the Indian communities, what the Indian communities represent is an off-agency source of transactions that doesn't report to the scrutiny of the Senate and the Congress or to the American people, for that matter. If they're off-agency transactions where the government can do whatever the heck it wants to do 
without any constitutional implications whatsoever because on the reservations, the Constitution doesn't count. They're under That's a completely imperial different technocracy. legal system. That's, That's right. Imperial technocracy. So they're doing stuff. Left. They're doing oh, yeah. stuff with impunity that they never, ever, ever could get away with doing in a state, out, you know, in a normal state situation. They would never get away with it. But they can do it with impunity and legality, I might add, when they do it through the auspices of an Indian reservation. It's a different type of an entity to them. We've only got isn't 11 minutes really, left. David, can you go ahead and kind yeah, of get is, us into the next segment? Sure. Isn't it really an issue here you guys have been addressing already of divide and conquer? Uh, it really is not cowboys versus Indians anymore, but the cowboys and the no. Indians versus the banksters and the banksters being supported by what I call the general government because that's what the founders called it, not the federal government. We seem to make that mistake. Federalism is where the general government has limited power. We now have the general government having national power, and that's not federalism. So, you know, we really right. have a situation right. where the general government's in bed with the banks. We, there's a term for that. It's called corporate fascism in some regards. Um, so it's against the cowboys and the Indians both. Would you both agree with that? I would, and I would say that uh, if, for many, many decades... Out here in the West, the cowboys and the Indians got along just fine. Uh, there were really uh, most reservations were opened up long ago in the 1870s, 80s, 90s, uh, and and they're predominantly non-Indian. For example, on the Yakima, it is 75% Hispanic, 10% uh, Anglo, and 15% Indian. They got along. Their, their kids went to school. Everybody got along just fine until the gaming came on and the big money rolled out to the tribes, and the tribes were able to literally purchase our decision makers in Congress. And all of a sudden, the divisiveness that has created, that has put cowboys versus Indians back into play, where it never was until, until the, the, the feds started seeing how they could use the tribal governments. And then started being beholding where these congressmen now will put the tribal sovereignty above their own state sovereignty and they will not protect the people that elected them. I so it's our, it's our Congress and our executive branch doing this to all of us, Indians and cowboys alike. David, can you kind of tie us into the last of the links in the last segment? Sure. It's a perfect tie-in because... We, and I was just thinking for a moment about uh, the principle of perpetrated ignorance, how the media is used to lead us into a certain direction in our thinking. And back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, how many Cowboys and Indian movies did the people of America watch where we created a psychological uh, adversarial relationship between the Cowboys and the Indians over and over and over and over again? You know, with famous you know, movie stars like Roy Rogers and John Wayne and, and so on. And, and creating a uh, benefit to the government to be able to continue their, their way of, of uh, manipulating the people. And the last segment of our, of our section of our links is to Attorney Lana, Lana Markison, who I know both of you know very well. And she points out in, her, in a presentation that we've listed in there that uh, the most screwed over people were the Indians who did not have rights of citizens of the United States government that there's an absolute reason they promote tribal sovereignty. It's not for the benefit of the tribe. They could care less about the tribe. Go look at how these people live. They don't give a damn about what happens to the individual American uh, Indian. 
this this is a key point. We're, this whole show is about the individuals being uh, having their rights protected, which obviously leads to the tribe's rights being protected. And uh, so if you wouldn't mind uh, addressing that, uh, either one of you, uh, as uh, we continue into through this final segment. Well, we've had some current events that have brought into play uh, the misuse of the Federal War Powers Act. And uh, the Supreme Court just issued a couple of very interesting rulings that discuss territory, the federal government's authority in territories and its lack of authority in states. Um, the, case, the two cases, Puerto Rico versus Sanchez and Puerto Rico versus Valle, uh, two cases written by liberal justices, by the way, that, that talk about this War Powers Act and its appropriate use. What is being used by the federal government now is the War Powers Act uh, to expand this tribalism against states. You know, the War Powers Act is only applicable in territories. Once a state acquires its statehood, the federal government may not commit an act of war against the state. But what it's doing, and we've got a good example out here on the Flathead, they just recently passed a, 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 a water settlement compact that gives one little tribe 20% of the Montana's waters in all the western counties in, in the state of Montana. 20% of Montana's waters are now utterly controlled, and they own a big hydropower dam, uh, by, by a tribal government. And the Secretary's authority to do that is under a War Powers Act. And it has never been confronted by the state. This state caved and went right along with it. So what was yes. happening was underneath all this expansion of tribalism is the federal government and executive branch misuse of the War Powers Act uh, for expanding tribalism as the the soon-to-be predominant governing system in this country if we don't get it stopped. Patrick, uh, this really, in the last five minutes, bring it all back together for us, if you would. Yeah, Give well, us a definition. If, if this isn't a clear picture of imperial technocracy uh, going against the will of the people to do what the empire wants to do, I don't know what is. Well, exactly. the... Yeah, the, the the empire is obviously doing what it wants to do right now. But uh, if you if you look at a map of the United States uh, and if you could color the all the Indian reservations in a different color, like pink or something, just so they stand out, um, and you think about uh, each of those little areas as a sovereign nation, which which is a, a which is not correct, by the way, but this is the way it's being treated okay. today. Yeah, when you, yeah. if, if you were to look at them as a sovereign nation, you'd realize that our country uh, is like looks like a piece of Swiss cheese. And you, you talk about divide and conquer. Uh, I don't know that this is the actual intended thing here because it goes back into the 1800s when the when the whole system was set up in the first place. But um, when, when you look at this. It certainly is being used today by our federal administration, by, especially by Obama, but it goes back further than that. It goes back to, at least yeah. to Bruce Babbitt. Um, they have turned the whole philosophy of these tribal reservations into a weapon against America. And the, the way they can do this is because these, these individual little communities – uh, they're saying our sovereign nation. They, could, they don't. They don't uh, fall under the Constitution. 
and they can do whatever they want to do. For instance, if a tribe decides that it wants to sell or lease some of its uranium deposits to, say, China or Russia, it can do that. It has full authority right now, under the way things stand right now, full authority to go out and make separate transactions with foreign governments to dispose of their own assets. Now, this is crazy um, because, uh, you know, it's been uh, a culture is defined uh, or a country is defined by borders and culture and language. And the fact that this these two communities were set up in America so long ago was just tragic because these yeah. people were never allowed to assimilate into our culture, into the rights that we have, into the into the ownership of property. They don't have the same property rights that we have either. Um, so they can't assimilate. And they've been, in a sense, the people have had their spirit broken because they can't possibly get ahead the way they are. So they just stay on the reservation and they wither. And I, I see this in Arizona. I drive by reservation every day. And I see these people, a difference between uh, the, the state of Arizona and the cities and so on and what goes on in the reservation. Uh, I can't say these people really like to live that way, but they're trapped right in the middle of our own prosperous America. They are trapped. They can't get out. And unfortunately, yep. the human nature is uh, that people are corrupt no matter where you find them. It's not a tribal issue for sure. Uh, there's corrupt Americans. There's corrupt uh, uh, Canadians. Yeah. There's corrupt Mexicans. Yeah. And there's corrupt Indians. Yeah. And, and corrupt people will find a way to, uh, to twist the system for their own benefit. And this is just happening everywhere you look today. It's, a, it's almost a cultural thing across America at this. If, the, if nothing else works, try corruption. <laughs> In the last exactly. few minutes, if Pat, if Patrick, if, if uh, the historian, uh, if, if uh, Mr. Sutton was with us, what would he say in the last two minutes? I don't think he say. I don't think he would say too much. Oh, I'm sure he'd say something. But uh, if, if if I were to sum it up, I, I think probably what he would say is, "I told you so." <laughs> yeah. And what would, what would be the "I told you so" line? Follow the money, follow the power. Well, it would be. But yeah. you know, we we uh, back in the '70s, and him, and he even before that, we nailed this thing six ways to Sunday. We told people what would happen when these policies were enacted back then, back in the early days of the Trilateral Commission. We told people what it was. We analyzed it. We read their documents. We didn't theorize. We read what they said they were going to do, and we said, if they're allowed to continue to do X, you can fully expect Y and Z to take place. Mm -hmm. And we documented this. We spoke about this all over the country. Our books got distributed all over Tarnation, even used in some political science classes, by the way, at major universities. And for all the good it did for our publishing activities, our speaking, our engagement, we debated members of the Trilateral Commission publicly on several instances. For all the good that our, our efforts did back then, it changed nothing, absolutely nothing. And that's why I say I think Tony would just shake his head and say, look, we told you so. Stop whining. Just stop Wait, whining. Tony, you got what, what you Tony's deserve. Now, if you want to make a difference, get off your rump and do something about it so we don't have to say it again 50 years from now. 
Firebell in the like, night. What would Tony say yeah, about so, tanks being used so, against American citizens? Uh, yeah, against yeah. the no-fly zone being used against American citizens? What, we've only got a few seconds left. What would Tony's reaction to that be besides, I told you so? Well, a police state is the end of uh, a tyrannical state. That, that's it. I mean, this is this happened in Russia. It happened in, in, in Nazi Germany. It happened in uh, in Italy and in, in fascist Italy, and it's happened in China. Yep. And it's happening today. Yeah, it's happening that is right the here. Firebell in the night. Yep. 